Hello, and welcome to the Lotus in the Fire podcast. I'm Joseph Bobro. Today, I'm delighted to welcome an old friend and colleague, Mushim Ikeda. Mushim is a socially engaged Buddhist teacher, mindfulness meditation teacher, social justice activist, author, and diversity and inclusion facilitator. She teaches primarily at the East Bay Meditation Center in downtown Oakland, where she also served on the leadership sangha and is now the community coordinator. Mushim has taught meditation retreats for people of color, social justice activists, and women nationally. Her work is based in values of cultural humility, acknowledging the wisdom in individuals and collectives, and the need for expression, empowerment, and co-creative self-determination in marginalized communities. Welcome, Mushim, to Lotus in the Fire. Thank you, Joe. I'm glad to be here. How are you holding up during these times, during the pandemic, the times of rising police violence and uprising? What, what are you finding the most challenging and yet maybe at the same time something promising? Thanks for asking. Um, I'll start with what is the most promising because the most promising is the result of what is most challenging for me. And what's most promising is the momentum and the organization in the movement for black lives. Mm. So that's the movement for black lives. They have a website. There's a very organized platform and series of demands. And one can um, get texts from Movement for Black Lives on one smartphone, if one has a smartphone, uh, about initiatives and um, what is happening. And there aren't many texts, so people who want to sign up can know that everything is being handled uh, in a clear and strategic manner. So that's what I find most promising, once again, is the momentum of this movement worldwide. I, I feel it's the major liberatory movement of our current times. And what's most challenging is the whole reason that this movement is being organized. And that is the systemic um, anti-blackness in the United States, as well as in other countries. However, I'm a citizen of the United States, so I'll speak for my country. The systemic anti-blackness, the racism, the structural violence that has been um, in place against uh, black people in the United States since the United States was the United States and from before that. What's the major issue, uh, Mushim, that you hear about from your students and uh, associates? The major issue in my Buddhist and spiritual teaching, Joe, is and many of these people are very active agents of change and social justice activists. So I don't want my words to be misconstrued as meaning that most of these folks are not doers. They are. They're very, very active um, in the world, and they are very active in um, in strategic actions and initiatives to dismantle white supremacy and the other systems of structural violence that are are in place and are are working even as we speak. the The issue that they bring to a spiritual teacher is one of wanting to seek more ways to learn how to um, love oneself, to see oneself as beautiful, as kind, as worthy of love, and to put it frankly, as worthy of being. Because that is the result of a lifetime of conditioning conditioning 
by within a racist society, within a homophobic society, within a classist society, within a transphobic society, that the messages that the person is given day after day, 24 hours a day, is that you are less than, you are ugly, something's wrong with your body. This would include uh, large-bodied or fat-identified people. It's really almost everyone is going to fall into one category or another, which is the ironic and yet telling part of it. We're all going to become older and in danger of being cast aside and ignored unless we die younger, and then that's a problem. We're all subject to becoming disabled at any moment if we don't already uh, identify as a person with a disability. And uh, we live in a very, very violent, violent society um, so that really universally, I find almost everyone Almost everyone feels that somehow they are lacking rather than they are enough. And and how do these currents, uh, in context of the recent events, uh, have they caused you to revisit certain elements of Buddhist practice and principles, maybe draw on things um, that had been to one side or maybe question some received wisdom. Uh. That's a good question. Interestingly enough for myself as a Buddhist practitioner, nothing has happened that's caused me to question any received wisdom, which has given me a lot more faith in Buddhism as my path. I'm not saying it's for anyone else. And that this was surprising to me. And specifically, uh, what was surprising to me is that a couple of years ago, I went into a pretty deep depression about the climate crisis. And this was the time when wildfires were consuming a large part of uh, California, both the southern and northern. I live in Oakland, California. And at one point, even though the fires were pretty far from us in terms of geographical miles, the winds were such that the air in Oakland and Berkeley, the area where I live, it was toxic. It was unbreathable. It was literally unbreathable. There was a heavy haze in the air. People were advised not to go out unless you were wearing a mask, and even then, that didn't really help that much. So, in effect, no one went out. There were no cars on on the expressway. Everything was very shut down. It was surreal. It was eerie. Um, I was inside with my air filter uh, turned on high, and when I reached my lowest point, really in a fit of despair, I was extremely surprised because what came roaring upward was my early Buddhist training, which was in Zen, specifically in Korean Zen. However, I've experienced in uh, the Japanese lineages of Soto and Rinzai as well. So basically Zen, as I've experienced the training in North America, and those um, teachings heavily influenced by Taoism about um, the, well, Buddhism, teaches that everything that is born or has a beginning will at certain point die or drastically change form and cease to be. And so that was a teaching that obviously aligns with what I'm seeing now, which is uh, the dissolution of so many forms and of the disappearance. People are saying there will be no post pandemic life because not in, in terms of normal. They're talking about there will be a new normal and we don't know what that will be, that we've reached a watershed with the COVID-19 pandemic and nothing will ever be the same again. I personally believe this and this is a reality that as anxiety producing as it is for me, the teachings of Buddhism and in this case, particularly Zen are magnificent ways of being able to practice and 
and work with it um, because with these teachings and with these practices, we do learn that everything is constantly in a state of change. And as far as I know, there is no God who is saying, and we're going to calibrate the rate of that change and the scope of that change to make it comfortable for everyone. Mushim, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you've been intimately engaged with engaged Buddhist practice for decades. And I wonder, what is engaged Buddhist practice for you today? And, and why, why is it important? I personally, and this is, again, I speak only for myself. I personally think that to say engaged Buddhist practice is like saying I'm going to have a drink of water, water. No, we can just say, <laughs> like, have a drink of water. <laughs> that will suffice. <laughs> okay, s- say more, say more. And uh, this is because, and, I, and I, I do try to study, so I completely, I completely acknowledge that um, I think that Buddhism is a global faith tradition, although it is non-theistic, global faith tradition. And like all global faith traditions, there's a huge spectrum of ways that people practice, uh, the lens through which people view the world. And so there is a strain, as there is in all global faith traditions, in all religions, of um, practitioners and teachings and teachers who feel that, that really for us, whoever that us may be, it's best for us not to engage politically, and that what we're doing are practices that help to align us with God, if it's a theistic tradition, or there might be other words that are used in non-theistic traditions. Um, It might be shorthand, might be union with the divine or alignment with the spiritual um, realm that which we cannot see or feel or taste or touch at the same time being human beings, that spiritual realm is, is, is very clear to us in so many different ways to, to everyone who is a spiritual person. And my involvement with what's called socially engaged or engaged Buddhism, in other words, Buddhism that engages with the world of politics, which recognizes oppression and liberation in terms of movements and actions, and which fully acknowledges that in human society, and even a, even a hermit is in human society, um, is that in human society that we are all subject to causes and conditions having to do with um, groups that are targeted for oppression. That might be in the United States, people of color, specifically black and brown uh, folks. However, all people of color, all people who are non-white, and among people who are white identified and among the entire population, that would also include people who are low income, which is almost everyone at this point because of the wealth inequity, people with disabilities, uh, members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, questioning, two-spirited community, and young people and children always because they basically have no, have no rights. So my engagement, I feel, is directly connected to the Bodhisattva vows and precepts which I received um, in 1983 in the Zen Buddhist Temple of Toronto. That's where I received the Buddhist name Mushim. And Tell us what it means. Those, those vows, the Bodhisattva vows? No, your name. Oh, my name. Oh, um, yeah, it's Romanized. I've Romanized it as M-U-S-H-I-M. Um, when I received it, 
It was M-U-S-I-M. However, it's Korean and it is pronounced with an H sound. So it's better to just say Mushim or Mushim is also good. And it is a word from a central text in the Mahayana um, lineage of Buddhism and very, very important to teachers and practitioners, practitioners of Zen Buddhism. Uh, and that is called the Heart Sutra. The Heart Sutra. And this is being chanted in many languages, including um, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese, English, all over the world at this very moment in different time zones. Um, and so the word uh, Mushim is Mushin in Japanese and is um, a trans uh, is the Korean word for what in translation are the famous lines in the Heart Sutra of no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. So in, in that line, all of the no's are mu. Mu this, mu that, mu. Mu means, um, you can say it means no. And shim or shin is translated usually as heart mind. So my Buddhist name means no heart mind, and it is from the Heart Sutra. Tell us, Mushim, the meaning that has uh, for you, but even more important, why that particular teaching today might be of use. Maybe it's not, but it might be of use in a practical way for some of the struggles that your students and associates bring to you? That's a good question, too. Let me take a step back and uh, say that, once again, I referred to the Bodhisattva vows and precepts. For those of you listening who may not be familiar with them, uh, these are vows to help decrease suffering in ourselves and in the world. And it being a Buddhist um, vow, it acknowledges that it might be believed or not that each of us lives many lifetimes, however that might be interpreted. Whatever the belief is, the basic message is we're in this for the long haul. However long it takes, we are going to try to be helpers to decrease suffering in the world in the wisest way that we can and in the most deeply rooted way that we can. So to answer your question, uh, the Heart Sutra is famously, I think it's fair to say enigmatic and um, difficult to relate to, um, and yet it's very popular. So obviously many people are relating to it in one way or another. And for myself, um, I'm looking at it. It's on my wall. Actually, I would say that the virtue of the Heart Sutra, as with many spiritual traditions from many lineages, is that it provides us with a very big picture. It opens up the opportunity for the human being to see beyond our particular birth and our particular death beyond our geographic boundaries and locations, um, really it opens a, us up to a universal viewpoint that from that viewpoint we can see that there are great cycles of birth and death, including our own solar system, our planet, um, really everything that we know. And once we can move into that vantage point, then we gain a lot more equanimity in understanding that it's a both and. On one hand, of course, we are working with all of our might, with all of our heart, with everything we have to, de to decrease suffering in the world, to promote happiness and well-being for the many, and... Um, and at the same time, we can, we can relieve ourselves from burnout, from despair, um, yeah, just from collapsing yeah, under the sheer yeah. weight of the suffering 
by taking by being able to move or even just taste or glimpse uh, that universal um, viewpoint that um, we're all in a constant state of change and this this entity that I call me and this body it wasn't always here it certainly always wasn't here in this form and who knows at some point I'm 66 fairly soon probably there will be a radical change and that is the process that we call death and that this is natural it's not particularly to be feared though if it's painful of course that's not a great thing but that death is is completely natural and in fact it's desirable in the sense of there can only be so many life forms on this planet so human beings have overpopulated and any life form that overpopulates, there needs to be a kind of a, of a balancing. So yeah, I'm I, only speaking again for myself, not for anyone else. Well, that's it's why, that that's why we have you, natural. that's why we have you on because we want you to speak. Uh, we want uh, your true self to speak through you. So I really value this. Mushim, is, is there a question, kind of a, a through line or a thread of inquiry that has wound its way through your work and life? That's, that's an interesting question. I would say that I grew up in Ohio. I was born in Cleveland. I grew up near Akron in a very working class Um environment a lot of my classmates in school were children of people who had come to that area near Akron which was known as the tire capital of the world a lot of tire factories from West Virginia and and uh, so that's the environment that I grew up in mm -hmm. it was very Christian predominantly Baptists probably because Catholics were Catholics were even an exotic minority where I grew up. Uh, that was in the '60s, and in third grade, I mean, I was a pretty happy kid until I learned how to read, which was pretty young. And then I started reading everything I could get my hands on, including um, my parents had a subscription to a magazine called Reader's Digest that was a little anthology in cheap pulpy paperback form that would come very often. And it was not for children. It was for adults. So it had all kinds of articles about things going on in the world. And I would get done with everything I had to read. And then I would get my parents copy of the reader's digest and I'd read that. And that really introduced me to some very troubling uh, material. I remember at one point asking my father, I said, you know, Daddy, I just read this article in the Reader's Digest. What's a prostitute? And he got this odd look on his face, and I thought, whoops, guess I shouldn't have asked that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he said, a prostitute is a woman who sells her favors to men. Do you understand? And the only thing I could think of was were party favors, which were things that if you went to birthday parties, mm -hmm. you would get, like, candy and little gifts and toys and things like that. But I knew I shouldn't pursue this further. So I said, I said, thank you, dad. And had no idea of what all of it meant. I just knew that there were, there were adult realms of experience that I was probably not supposed to know about as a child. And, um, and that were not pleasant. So I became aware of that very young. I was also, subject in school in Ohio in that time, there was a lot of fear around the Cold War between the United States and Russia. We were in constant fear of being under nuclear attack by Russia. And so we would do these ridiculous air raid drills at school where um, in other schools they would do duck and cover and hide under their desks. In our case, we would be filed out into the hallway away from windows that would break and we would stand there till the end of the drill drill. And even though I was only in third grade, I knew this was ridiculous. It was not going to protect us. And we would be either incinerated or die of um, 
the subsequent fallout and poisoning afterward gruesomely. So in third grade, I would lie awake at night, and the main question, which is the through line, um, for me was I would lie awake as a third grader and look up in the darkness and think, how is it that human beings have created these, we didn't use the term then, these weapons of mass destruction to use on each other to kill the environment? And if there is a God, why would this God not put a stop to this? Mm-hmm. And that would be the through line throughout my life. Mm-hmm. I have a question that's similar to that question, which I've been mulling over especially intensely the last six months. But I think it's been uh, bubbling for a long time. One of the core Buddhist realizations is that my best interests, my deepest well-being, co-arises with yours that there's absolutely, essentially, there's absolutely no opposition between what's best for me and what's best for you. So the individual and the collective are intrinsically intertwined. Yet I find this, this realization is incredibly elusive for so many of us that it does seem like it's either or. And I'm wondering, just right off the top of your head, why is it so difficult for us as a species to realize this? Joe, who's gonna say what's the best for anyone? I mean, I'm, as an American woman, I'm constantly subject to the laws of what can be done with my body. Who's, who is going to say what is best? That's why. That's the, that's the problem. You know, as a Buddhist teacher, I do teach on the Buddhist precepts, which are our ethical guidelines. Our first precept can be languaged as not to kill or harm, instead to cherish all life. Okay, sounds great. How about, does that mean we all need to be vegan, anti-abortion rights people? What would you say to that? Right. I, I guess I was coming at it from a different, from a different angle. Um, the, the angle that we're all in this together. The angle that although many of us in power these days believe that the best way to tackle, say, the pandemic is to Uh, or immigration is to create more walls, create more isolation, create more disconnection, as if we could separate ourselves from the well-being and the condition of one another and just carve out a nice little niche for ourselves. And it seems to me the, the realization that would be transformative would be that we're all in this together. We're all breathing the same air and actually breathing the same virus. And if we could get that, that that would really be transformative. So I was looking at it at that level and just wondering what there is about human psyche, human consciousness that makes it such a hard nut to crack that, uh, that we're all swimming in the same sea. Well, we're all swimming in the same sea, but the question becomes how comfortable do we want to be? And that's a real question. That's not, um, that's not a light um, question. I may say the homeless person that I pass by surrounded by piles of garbage, which is all around us here in Oakland and in the Oakland Berkeley area, um, that that homeless person and I are one in the spiritual sense. Yes, that is true. Do I want to live like that person? I have been homeless during the course of my spiritual career. I have lived under conditions of profound poverty. No, 
I don't want to be one with that person, if I'm completely honest. I don't want to have to wonder where I'm going to go to the bathroom. I don't want to have to wonder what will happen if I get a tooth infection. Am I just going to die or what? I mean, I've, I've dealt personally with all of these issues um, before. I do want to be comfortable. I do want to be safe. I do want to be uh, secure. I live um, in Oakland with my adult child and I want him to be secure and safe. We don't need to be fabulously rich or, you know, even before the pandemic, go on fancy vacations. We live very, very simply. I do want to live in safety. And that's in Buddhism, the Buddhist teaching on loving kindness, the metta sutta. That's what it says. May all beings be safe and protected from harm, physical harm and mental harm. I could be I could be and, wrong here. I could be wrong, Mushim. So you'll 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 correct me. But it's sounding like you're hearing me say we're all one, as meaning we're all the same. And and that's no, exactly. I'm, I'm not. I'm I'm actually not. I'm I'm answering you as to why people don't get it is because. Um, everyone has their own pains, their own challenges, their own difficulties. As a person of color, I might say, hey, white people, you've got all of this white privilege. You don't have to suffer the way people of color do. And that is true. However, white people have their own challenges, their own um, sufferings. I just got an email from a very old friend who is a white American this morning who is probably landing right now in another state um, to deal with a situation of a parent who is has been in a state of dementia for a long time and now has um, other medical problems as well, which are very, very challenging. Um, so we are not all the same, and we all have difficulty. So, so let me run this story by you and, and get your feedback, because I was thinking about this. I, I, I think I'm hearing you now. It took me a little while. Um, you were clear, but it just took me a little while to, to get your, your intent, I, which I think I've got. And it makes me think of this um, uh, f- video clip of the Dalai Lama meeting with the Mind and Life Foundation. I think it was a pretty recent meeting uh, in Dharamsala, and, you know, with the utmost respect for, for uh, His Holiness, I really had a question about something that he said, and it seems to be the point that you're making as well. There, there were a group of people who were invited, and they were invited mostly from third world countries, and they were people of color, mostly, not, not, not only. Um, and they began to go around the room uh, to introduce themselves to him and he kind of dismissed that he kind of said you know uh, I'm really much more convinced that we are all one so we can just start Uh, and he was clearly not that interested in the distinctiveness of each of the guests who was presenting the work that they were doing in their own country pioneering work Um, and I thought this represented something that, that I've been thinking for years, and that is that it may be much more important to accept and understand one another's differences, the distinctiveness and the, the, the profusion of diversity, than, and, and to hold that within a frame of equality and oneness, but, but not to to paper it over in a kind of seamless oneness, but to actually greet people in all of their distinctiveness. And, and, I, and I wonder what you think about that. Part of my work that I do is as a, a diversity consultant. These days, the field is called diversity, equity, and inclusion often, or DEI. And I totally agree with what you're saying, that most human beings I know of any age, including and perhaps especially children, 
and especially very elderly people, because they're so often ignored, invisibilized, not um, not heard, that they want to be seen and they want to be heard in their distinctiveness and in we don't even need to use the word difference as much as their their uniqueness mm-hmm. and how they identify. And by uniqueness, it might not be according to the culture as individuals because they are very collective cultures. I'm Japanese American. I come from a very collective culture. And they might want to be seen in the distinctiveness of their ancestry and how how important it is for them to feel that other people understand even a little or see what is so special, what is so beautiful, what is truly unique about their ancestry. Because each individual, each cultural group does have characteristics that are unique, their art, their culture. Um, It's not going to be like anyone else's. And that's what, that's, a lot of what makes the world so beautiful and so interesting. You know, you wrote the most terrific column for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship's newsletter, Turning Wheel. And you wrote it, I think, for for almost 10 years. Uh, and it was- a, I did write it for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was a, a column uh, beginning from your own experiences, raising your son, and it was about parenting from a Zen or from a Buddhist perspective or just from a human perspective. And I recall it uh, and, and how, how valuable I found it and, and many found it. You know, today, given the pandemic and the challenges that many families face, I, I hear from a fair number of parents about how challenging it is to be working from home, struggling to earn a living, at the same time being there for their kids, and uh, often being their kids' teachers, uh, and at the same time maybe trying to maintain some kind of self-care or spiritual practice. Uh, you have any words of wisdom? I don't know that I have words of wisdom. I have some words. <laughs> okay. And that is, um, I'm, I'm going to read a quote from, I believe, the, the founder of, and I have to find it, it's, it's on the side of a mug. <laughs> um, 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 here it is, a mug that was given to me by my cousin, Reverend uh, Mary Jiko Nakade, who is the priest and head of Daifukuji Soto Zen Temple near Kona on the big island of Hawaii. And she's my cousin, and she and I both breastfed our children um, for many years until they, they basically were ready to wean themselves. And so that's between us, three kids, a lot of years of breastfeeding, and so this is a La Leche League cup, and the La Leche League is an organization, nonprofit, that supports um, breastfeeding. And Marion Thompson says, raising a loving, caring child is the most important contribution any of us can make to the progress of the world. Mm-hmm. So the most important contribution any of us can make to the progress of the world is raising a loving, caring child, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. according to this quote. So that giving Which oneself wholeheartedly to that task um, is the yeah. most important yeah. thing and the most important way to practice. I believe it is, and that acknowledges that not everyone has the conditions to raise a loving, caring child. If, if um, we ourselves are in a situation, as adults are in a situation where we have to work 
so that, I mean, there are children who are like latchkey kids under non-pandemic conditions. And I myself was one, actually. At, at some point, my um, parents lived separately because my mother went back to school to earn a degree as a pharmacist, moved down to Southern Ohio with our baby sister, and my father took my brother and me. And so when we come came home from school, no one would be home and we had a key and we'd let ourselves in and start making stuff for, for dinner. Um, even though we were young children, we all had our chores. So not, not everyone has the conditions to raise their children in ways where the children always are going to feel safe, are always going to be in environments where education is, um, is possible. Uh, because some people are scr- scrabbling for their survival. And with the conditions of the pandemic and shelter in place or quarantine, I'm highly aware that the pressures within a household with kids bouncing off the walls or family tensions that are escalated by everyone being shut in is enormously high. There are very disturbing and probably predictable reports of domestic violence being mm. on the rise uh, because everyone's so cooped up together. And for those parents and guardians or anyone who is raising children to be able to internalize this message and then to carry it forth imperfectly and as best they can is what gives me hope for a better world because um, I think that so much of what we see, Joe, on every scale, individual, local, national, and global in the human world, so much of the suffering can be traced back to um, to trauma and often to compounded trauma in which um, in which a child who was born as a caring, empathetic, um, receptive, being who wants to love and who wants to be loved is injured and is damaged by various traumatic circumstances uh, so that then they can become uh, cruel. They can become uncaring. They can become so defended that they don't feel in a, in a body way what you were pointing to, which is our interconnection. There were a couple of quotes at the end of your signature line that really hit home, and, and I just want to read one and, and have you kind of riff on it for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, it's from Fragments of a Wish by Raphael Alberti. If in your country all hope is lost in the long heat of summer, the snows in my country help you to get it back. That quote is there, obviously, because it's so meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. No one no one has ever commented on that quote before, Joe. <laughs> You're the first. So I see you, you and I you hear you, it. Mushim. Yes, you certainly do. Um, So this is from a volume of poetry published possibly in the 70s. Um, It's a volume of uh, translations by the poet, American poet Mark Strand, of the Spanish poet Rafael Alberti, and the book is called The Owl's Insomnia. And I recently, in the past few years, started reading it again, I think that my original copy had been lost along the way in my years of Dharma bumming and traveling around with a little knapsack and reestablishing myself many places. And so um, I got uh, this, actually a friend had gotten it from a used bookstore after I told her about a particular poem in it, which she loved. And then she sent it um, to me after she finished reading this one poem, which is which was the one that interested her. So the particular quote that you're pointing uh, to, Joe, that I have on my signature line is so meaningful to me because I feel as though 
um, when when I again open myself somatically or in as an embodied being, and which seems again like saying water, water. However, such it is, um, because contemporary life so often can, for some people, myself included, make us into sort of talking heads. That when we sink into awareness of the body, uh, that feeling of a drought, which we're very familiar with in California, and the fear that comes with drought, because water is the basis of all life. What what happens if we run out of water? I mean, that does happen. That and and the heat, the long heat of summer, and and the drought. How extreme those conditions are, and how life threatening um, they are. And to say that if that is your condition, and in my country, in my world, literally or metaphorically, that. I have coolness, I have life-giving water, I have snows that will be the snow melt that can come down the mountains um, and into your, into where you are, into your being, um, that, that that is our lifeline. That is our lifeline of communication. That is the lifeline of what is possible in a relationship between any two entities. That if, you know, if you say, this is what I need, then I nat- will naturally reply without any hesitation, how can I help? Mm-hmm. I'd like to close, uh, and, and just by the way, uh, as, as people can hear, uh, you are a, a writer, and you also write poetry, and so I'd like to close with a recent poem of yours, uh, The Stowaway Seeds, which I found very moving. And uh, I wonder if you'd, if you'd like to read it for us. I would love to. Thank you so much for the invitation. This poem was uh, published in mid-April of this year, 2020, in the online journal, The Arrow, a journal of wakeful society, culture, and politics. And they are Buddhist-based, though not limited to Buddhism. The Stowaway Seeds. I am afraid to touch the shopping cart, the bright, cool hide of the fragrant orange, the wet sand on the beach. This pandemic virus spreads RNA where people pass too close to one another and gather to buy food or crowd the ocean's edge. It cannot be killed because it isn't alive, my scientist brother says. But something unknown has always contained our death which is why we are respectful and delicate. As we lift teacups and snow salt crystals on grilled asparagus and touch one another, and spoons and books and the surfaces of the earth, we will one day be pressed gently between, like book pages on the fat stems of large leaves. Such abundant offerings these tiny crowns and multiplying stars, the resplendent small burrs I found in the rough striped blanket we took to the woods before everything shut down. They came home with me to seed a new world in which we aren't the most important thing. That is so beautiful. Thank you, Mashim, and thank you for making time uh, to talk with me today. I wonder if you could just close by telling people about your program that you're offering in July. Is it the 27th? It has a very catchy title. Oh, it was the, it's 28th, July 
2020, um, I will be hosted by, I'm invited by East Point Peace Academy. And they are a nonviolence and um, uh, social transformation organization. East Point Peace Academy. And when the pandemic started, they started this series of talks by different speakers titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Where Do We Go From Here? And so they invited me to give a talk. And the topic that uh, is a topic on July 28th, you can go to their website to find the, the Zoom link and more details about the time, is titled, It's on Mindful Speech or Skillful Speech which is my topic that I'm teaching on these days. And I think the title is something like from WTF to please tell me more. <laughs> Skillful speech in a polarized world, something like that, or in a polarized society. Well, I really encourage uh, everybody to check it out. And again, Mushim, what a delight to be able to dialogue with you. Uh, all good wishes. Thank you so much, and the same to you. Um, may you, Joe, and everyone who's listening, may everyone be safe and protected from all harm. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thank you. That's our show for today. The Lotus and the Fire is produced by Deep Streams Zen Institute. The music is by Lou Richmond. Greg Wirth edited the audio. I'm Joseph Bobro. To learn more about Deep Streams, visit our website, deepstreams.org, and subscribe to the show so you can listen to new episodes as soon as they drop. Go to anchor.fm slash joseph dash Bobro to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. To provide feedback about the show, contact us at bobro at deepstreams.org. And please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks. Until next time, 